You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Good morning, church. Um, My name is Lauren. Um, I primarily serve with the Counseling and Care Ministry. Um, This morning, we'll be reading out of Genesis 28, starting in verse 10. Um, If you don't have a Bible with you, you can get one out of the seat pocket in front of you. Give me a minute to get there. Starting in verse 10, Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me, and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God, and this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And all of that you will give me, I will fulfill a tenth to you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, church family. Good to see you here. Glad you're with us. If you're a guest among us, I want to welcome you. My name is Shay Sumlin, one of the pastors here, and we are in Genesis 28. We have been in this book for well over a year now, cruising through and studying the book of Genesis. And one thing that we can say that Genesis is all about is tracing the invincible promise of God to bring about a savior in whom the whole world can be blessed as the one who can forgive us for our sins. And this is right out of the gate from the beginning. As soon as sin entered the world in Genesis 3, we have been tracing God's promise that there will be a child who will be born, a miraculous child, who will be a savior for the world. And so we've traced that through a genealogical tree all the way through from Adam and Eve's line down through Seth and go on through Noah. And eventually in chapter 12, we meet Abraham, whom God pulls out of the Ur of the Chaldeans and says, I'm going to use you. And his line continues through his miraculous son, Isaac. And now we come to Jacob. And so we're watching this story unfold, the invincibility of the promises of God. And yet we're seeing it through these broken families along the way, these jacked up families along the way, that even proving that the greatest threat to God's promise is our own selves, but even that won't stand in the way of what God is going to do. And so even in the last couple of weeks, chapter 26, 27, we've learned about the most recent jacked up family here with Isaac. And what we've learned is that Isaac and his 
wife, Rebecca, loved to play favorites. We saw in 26 and 27, uh, Isaac, the dad, favors his older son, Esau. Rebecca, the mom, favors her older son, our younger son, Jacob. And Isaac is now aging pretty quick and he wishes to bless his firstborns or his firstborn son, Esau. And mom doesn't like that. So she concocts this plan with the younger son, Jacob, to fool the husband, to fool the dad into giving his blessing to the second born son, not the firstborn. And Jacob, of course, eagerly complies with this, puts on his Chewbacca costume and goes in there. They, he deceives his dad, tries to grab that blessing. Esau then finds out this happened. He is royally ticked and forms a murder plot to go kill his younger brother, Jacob. Mom freaks out. So she wants to send Jacob away to protect him, but she's not gonna be upfront and honest with her husband about all the lies and deceit. So she manipulates him to sending off their son, Jacob, to go far away here under the auspices of, hey, let him go find a wife, just like Abraham's servant went and found me for you. So let's send him out of here and go back home. And Isaac complies with this. I mean, this is a dadgum soap opera. This is the 18th, episode, 18th season of The Bachelor all rolled into one here. And the truth is God needed none of this. He didn't need the human intervention. He didn't need all the manipulation in order to bring about the blessing for Jacob that he had already promised. He didn't need anyone's help, but because man chooses to sinfully intervene and manipulate and deceive, this whole thing blows up and there are unintended consequences. So now Jacob, who should have stayed in the land of Canaan and they could have gone off and found him wife, now he's gone. He's gonna take a 500 mile journey to to go back to his, his mom's brother's house and She sends him out thinking it'll only be a few days, but in reality is she'll never see her son again because he's gonna be gone now for the better part of 20 years and she's gonna pass away before he ever returns. And so this whole tragedy just sets in, but one of the themes you see in Genesis, we're gonna see it really clear uh, here in a few chapters when we get to Joseph, is that what man intends for evil, God will ultimately redeem for good. And on this journey of rebellion for Jacob the deceiver, much like many of our stories in this room, God's pursuing mercy is gonna break through, even despite Jacob. It's gonna break through his calloused heart. And Jacob in this text today is gonna have an encounter with the living God that will forever transform his life. And so, The encounter takes place in verse 10 and following as we just read, but I wanna show you the setup in verses one through nine. Follow with me here, starting in verse one of chapter 28. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him that you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, And take as your wife from there, one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away. 
And he went to Padan Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob and Esau's mother. And so what Isaac does here is he pronounces the same blessing that his dad got, that he got. Now he gives it to his son. Technically, it's not even his blessing to give. It's got to be God's blessing. But he blesses him nonetheless, speaks over his youngest son, sends him on his way. And Jacob, notice he goes on this journey, 500-mile journey, same route that Isaac, the servant, went to find Isaac's wife. Look at this map here, and you'll see uh, it just goes straight north up into Mesopotamia, into Haran, Padam Aran, and or Aram. And then it's basically like taking, jumping on 75 for us and just going straight up to Kansas City. Only there's not a Southwest Airlines flight you can jump on. There's no vehicle. You're walking this sucker. And there are three major north-south uh, routes in Israel in this day. This is the hardest one. It's right up the middle of the Judean mountains. Tough terrain to go. And so he heads out. And meanwhile, while he's taking this journey, if you look in verse six through nine, note the heartbreaking jealousy and rebellion of Esau that takes place. We see now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there and that he blessed him uh, and that he directed him that you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and went to Padan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau then went to Ishmael and took his, his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. And so, really tragic scene right here. If you read between the lines here, this is a picture of a son who is fighting hard for his dad's approval, for his parents' approval. But rather than taking the pain that he had in that to the Lord, Esau's life is marked by constant opposition and rebellion to any kind of authority. And in his rebellion, he's already married two Hittite women, causing his parents great pain. And now watching his father's blessing go towards Jacob and wanting that so bad, he goes to his uncle Ishmael, Isaac's older half-brother, and marries one of his daughters. So this is crazy. It's painful enough that he's now married three women in polygamous relationships. That's already difficult enough. It's painful enough that the first two were pagan Hittite women who worship false gods, but now thinking that he's gonna bring favor from his dad, he now intermarries with the line of the Ishmaelites. Now think about this. That's two lines now who've rejected God, Esau and Ishmael. Two lines that represent two different kingdoms that are future enemies of Israel, enemies of God, the Edomites and the Ishmaelites. And now they have joined together out of their rebellion towards God in this like united superpower that is bent on destroying Israel. And prophetically, that same spite has carried on for 4,000 years into present day times right now. 
And so incredible tragedy that you see in this story. But I think what breaks my heart the most about that story right there, it's not just a Bible story. I see this play out every day in my ministry. I have seen this played out in my own life, in my testimony. Little boys and little girls with such deep father wounds, deep mother wounds, that so desperately want approval that they cannot somehow obtain. And we're talking real pain, real relationships, or maybe it's favoritism that plays out like it does here, or real neglect, real abuse, real abandonment, real hurt. And then you mix it in with our own pride, our own jealousy, our own rebellion and opposition to authority, our own sin. And rather than taking all that pain that we have and just bringing it to the Lord, our heavenly father who longs to minister to us, who longs to heal us, we actually seek to try to fix those sins that have been done to us through our own sin. And it only serves to compound it even more. And sadly, it then reproduces itself generationally. So now we have multiple generations begetting the same sins that they swore they would never commit that had been done to them, but yet get passed on to the next generation. It's a horrific tragedy. But I want you to see in verse 10, the camera pans here. It pans away from Esau, who's traveling to his uncle's house on his dad's side in order to do harm. And now the camera pans to the path of Jacob, who's traveling to his uncle's house on his mom's side in order to flee from this harm. And you see this in verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba. He went towards Haran. He came to a certain place and he stayed there that night because the sun had set and taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And so here's the scene. He's about 40 miles north of Beersheba. He's in the middle of Israel, middle of the Judean hills. And the sun is now set. It's late. He decides to camp. We're going to see later that the place he's at is a place that was named after the Canaanites called Luz, L-U-Z. And now in the middle of the night, night is set in upon him and he grabs a stone for a pillow to sleep. Now that might seem like an insignificant detail, but it's there for a reason. It's meant to communicate something significant to us, a great juxtaposition of where Jacob started and where he's at now. Remember when Jacob came into this world, he was born into a family of favor. He was born into a family that was blessed by God. Abraham and then Isaac, incredibly wealthy, a lot of favor from God upon them. He had all of that. And now after trying to obtain the blessing of God, the blessing of his father out of his own means, out of his own effort, his own flesh, his own manipulation and deceit, the whole thing backfires on him. And literally overnight, this guy that came from such privilege, now all of a sudden he's headed hundreds of miles from home. And notice where he is. If you listen to this, fear is what's chasing behind him. Anxiety is what's in front of him. Darkness is what's over him. And a stone, uncomfortable pillow is what's underneath him. You ever been in that place? 
kind of like the prodigal son where because of your own rebellion, your own mistakes, just hard things that you've gone through, you find yourself in this place where everything has now been stripped away and you don't know north from south anymore. Like I, I, know, I know what that place is like. I've had my seasons where I and my own rebellion to the Lord, to my family, fell headlong into sexual immorality, fell into rebellion against God. I thought I'm going to obtain the blessing of God on my own. I don't need his help. I don't need anybody else's help. And the whole thing backfired. Left me lonely, left me afraid, left, left me wondering, is there a path forward in this? You know what it's like to be there in your own place of the wilderness where you are just questioning, does God even see me right now? Does God even love me right now? Can he forgive me for what I've done? Is there redemption moving forward or is this just it? That's exactly where Jacob finds himself. And then the unexpected happens. That moment where God breaks through and nothing will be the same. Let's go to this, verse 12. So Jacob falls asleep and he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on earth. And at the top of it, it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on that ladder. And behold, the Lord stood above it. And so he has this dream right here. And it's important to note these details. They're significant. First of all, the main feature we tend to see here is this ladder that's going through there. Now, the, the Hebrew word for ladder, uh, shulam, it's hard to translate to know exactly what it looks like here. Some have translated kind of like a fireman's ladder, just a traditional ladder going up. Others, it can be translated as a staircase. If you take the LZV translation, the Led Zeppelin translation, it's stairway to heaven. Whatever it is, this giant stairway is reaching from earth to heaven, or more importantly, as we'll see in a moment, from heaven to earth. And then you have these angels that are, some of them are ascending up the ladder and some are descending down like an escalator there. And we know angels are messengers of God. They are divine spirits who've been sent by God to do his bidding, both on earth and in heaven. They are oftentimes called messengers because they, de they deliver news. They deliver messages to God's people. And so we see them coming and going here. And then if you really pay attention at the top of the ladder, who's there? It's God himself. It's at the top of this stairway. This picture is like a, a portal that is opened up of divine revelation from heaven to earth. And the image that we have here, it's almost like that of a palatial castle, this beautiful castle. Imagine being in a beautiful castle in the entryway and there's this gorgeous grand staircase going up to the top. And there at the top is the king of this castle. And he's enthroned and enrobed and he's standing before you at the entrance. His servants are going down and up. They're doing his business for the king. And at the top of the stairway, as you enter in and see him and behold him, he delivers a divine oracle unto you. He gives a divine message here to Jacob. Now this encounter with the living God is incredibly important. Up to this point, Jacob has only known Yahweh through the lens of his parents. 
He's never had his own personal encounter with God until right here. And notice what God says to him. The end of verse 13, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So now, more important than just his earthly father giving him this blessing of promise, God the Father gives this promise certified in a divine oracle to Jacob. And he gives him the same three promises that he gave to his grandfather Abraham, his father Isaac, and now to him of land, seed, and blessing. All this land, your descendants are gonna inherit. The blessing in that You're going to be blessed along the way so that you can be a blessing to others. And ultimately, there's offspring that are going to outnumber the the dust on the ground. But one of those offspring, if you remember, is going to be the Messiah in whom all the earth will be blessed, who will undo what sin did back in Genesis 3. But most importantly, at the end of these promises, these promises, I'm going to be with you. He gives them his presence. And of all the promises I'm making you, the greatest one is you get me. I'm going to be with you until I've fulfilled all of this. How beautiful is it to know, by the way, that in your darkest, deepest need and despair, you can experience the presence of God with you, Emmanuel, who walks with you. The psalmist said in Psalm 91.4, When you are in your trouble, he will cover you with his pinions. Pinions are feathers. They're the tips of the feathers. He will cover you so much so around the tips of the feathers will touch. Under his wings, you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield to you and a buckler. When you're walking in the dark night of the soul, it's quite possible that the darkness you feel around you is simply the shadow of his wings that's got you in it. He will not drop the ball on you. That's why David confessed in Psalm 63, 7, for you have been my help and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy even in the midst of darkness that's all around you. Just this past week, we just had, felt like we just had a snowball of just so many hard things hitting many of our members here at Northway, Uh, even some of our staff. Many of you heard J.C. Cruz, one of our children's ministers, eight weeks or eight months pregnant, crossing an intersection fully pregnant with her other son in a stroller and then gets run over by a car. By God's grace, the baby, all babies and her lived. She went on to deliver that child, but did so with a spiral fracture on her right foot. Just incredibly traumatic and difficult and scary thing. One of our other members, Trevor Sampson, who had a liver transplant when he was 10 months old, 
went 30 years on that, and then it began to reject, and so needed another transplant. By God's miracle, got one uh, in the last couple of weeks, but even now is still struggling on the backside of it for full healing. And then even, as many of you know, Amy Goodwin, now on her second round of chemotherapy, battling breast cancer. And as scary as all these situations are, as I've sat in the hospital and talked with each one of these folks, the common thread amidst the fear, amidst the anxiety, everything that any of us would feel, there's this deep sense that the Lord is near. That even when everything is raining down on me, as long as I am in the shadow of his wings, I know he's got me. And so God assures Jacob here of his unfailing promises. Now, remember, Jacob had originally tried to obtain this blessing through his own effort, his own manipulating and deceiving effort. And what it brought about ultimately was harm. It brought about harm to his life. But did you catch now how he actually received the promise that he so desperately wanted? God gave it to him when he was sleeping, just like he did with his grandfather, Abraham, when he put him to sleep and then passed through the parts. He gave him the blessing after all that striving to obtain it. God gives it to him when he has nothing to do with it. Makes him go to sleep. God initiates this thing 100% as an act of grace to give him this blessing. Does that remotely sound familiar? Because that's exactly the testimony of every Christian in this room. You and I who have strived and manipulated and concocted our own plans in order to try to obtain the salvation and the blessing of God in our life, knowing that it all backfires on us, disappoints us until you find yourself all alone in the wilderness in the dark night of the soul with nothing under your head but an uncomfortable stone rock and then God breaks through when you least expect it. When you have, in a way that you have nothing to do with it, He initiates, he meets you right where you are. He brings you good news of great joy that you are loved, that you are pursued, that you are forgiven in Christ. You're secure now under his wings. None of it is the result of your own works that you could boast, but all of it is 100% initiated by God and provided by God and his mercy and grace towards you. And he promises you that in the days ahead, lo, I'll be with you to the end of the age. That is the beauty of God's covenant with us in Jesus Christ. Rather than us telling God, here's all the things we're going to do for you, God puts us to sleep and goes, hush, here's all the things I'm going to do for you, 100% on my part. All of this just continues to prove the invincibility of God's promises towards us in Jesus Christ. No matter what threats may come, even the ones from within, they're not going to stop God. I want you to note immediately after this encounter with God, after this dream, he wakes up look what he does. Verse 16, Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not even know it. Did you catch that? It's totally beautiful right here. He had no idea that this place of pain was God's place of purpose. He had no idea that this place of trial was God's place of transformation. That this place of grief, God was there. He was with him. And so in verse 17, he was afraid and he said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. It's the gate of heaven. 
And so right here, four things in those two verses, he exclaims, the Lord is in this place. This place is awesome. This place is the house of God. And this place is a gateway unto heaven for me. That is what a real encounter with a living God can taste like. A taste of what we're meant to experience even when we come together every Sunday in a room like this, when we are intended to come into the proverbial house of God, where we encounter the presence of God, we gain revelation of God for our lives through his word that we would encounter him in such a way that we are given access to him through Jesus Christ who died in our place and rose from the dead so that we could be in the presence of God and we respond to all that he's done to transform our life through worship and exaltation of the one who keeps his promises all the way to the end. And by the way, that's exactly what Jacob does in verse 18 and 19 as he worships. Look at this. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone, listen to this, the stone that he had put under his head and then he set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. My goodness, did you see what he just did? He took the stone that he had previously used before his encounter with God as an uncomfortable pillow under his head, he takes that very stone and after his encounter with God, he sets it up as an altar to worship the living God for who he is and what he has done. Only God, by the way, has the power to take a place of suffering and turn it into a place of worship. Many of you in this room know exactly what that is like. That is your testimony. If we were to do an archeological dig on some of you in this room, on some of those in this room who love Jesus Christ, some of the deepest believers we know who are walking with Jesus, if we were to do an archeological dig on your life and we were to note the altars that you have set up to worship God along the way of your life, what you'll come to find out is that those altars of worship were previously those original stones of pain because that's what God does. He meets us in the depths of our pain, in the ashes of pain, and he walks with us with his faithful presence. And he takes what man meant for evil, what the the effects of sin and the curse on the earth have done. And through Jesus Christ, he can redeem that into an altar of worship unto his name. This is what our God does some lonely, stony place of despair where God meets us and we can take that, that stone of pain and we can now use it as an Ebenezer of worship. Well, note in verse 19, he renames this place. It's no longer Luz anymore, L-U-Z. He names it Bethel. Beth in Hebrew, it's pronounced Beit, but Beth, as we would say it, means house. And El is short for Elohim, means God. It is the house of God. This painful stone, this is what God has shown me. I'm now gonna turn this into the house of the Lord. We're gonna get our worship on right now in this place. And then what you see him do in verse 20 and following is this text closes out. He then consecrates 
his life from this point forward through a vow unto God. It's the only vow that any of the patriarchs make that we have recorded. And it's the longest of all the vows in the Old Testament. But it says this in verse 20, Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and keep me in the way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, shoot, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And all that you give me, I will give a full tenth back to you. So notice what he does here. He restates not just the three promises of God of the covenant, but the three personal promises that God made in verse 15 to Jacob. He restates those. And it says if here, and many commentators translate this as some sort of conditional promise worship. If you do this, then I'll worship you. But I think the if is better translated as since, because God did promise this and he's just recounting it. If you'll be with me, if you're going to provide me, provide for me, if you're going to bring me back to this land, if that's what you're saying, oh God, well then I'm yours. If that's what you're going to do for me, my goodness, who am I to then live for myself ever again? If indeed you're going to do these things, then here's what I'm committing to you. Notice three things that he commits back. One commentator put them as this, devotion, dedication, and demonstration. Devotion, I'm going to bind myself to you, O God. Like I, I will attach myself to no other. Dedication, this altar, this is, this is the house of worship for you. This is the house of God. I'm, I'm going to worship you. No one else shall I worship. I'm dedicated to you. And demonstration, out of all that you're promising to bless me with, I recognize it's yours, not mine. And so all throughout my life, I'm gonna give 10%. That's what tithe means, by the way, 10%. As an ongoing stone of remembrance, of commemoration, to demonstrate my worship and my love for you. And he does that just like his grandfather did Abraham to Melchizedek when he tithed 10% under the Lord of Melchizedek. This ongoing offering of generosity in response to the Lord's generosity in all things that have been given to me. And this, all of this, by the way, is a microcosm of what should be seen in the life of any Christian who has tasted of God's kindness towards us through Jesus Christ. And so there's chapter 28. Beautiful picture here in the story of Jacob a sinful rebel who tried to obtain the blessing of God through his own effort, through his own deceit, his own manipulation, who totally blew it. And then wondering if he's lost everything, finding himself in the wilderness only for God to break through when he least expected it, to have an encounter with a living God who grants him what he could never earn or deserve. Through grace, he gives him the blessing of life. Now, before we close out, can I show you what this passage is really about through the lips of our own savior, Jesus Christ himself? Go away from Genesis 28 here, turn your right, head over to John chapter one. Just briefly, I wanna show you through Jesus' own lips what chapter 28 was always about. In John chapter one, in the New Testament, we've got a story about a disciple of Jesus's named Philip, and Philip is so excited about Jesus, he's gonna go grab one of his friends to get him to come meet Jesus. His friend's name is Nathaniel. 
And Nathaniel is sitting underneath a fig tree one afternoon and he's just meditating when Philip's gonna come get him. But before Philip gets there, and based on the context of this passage, here's what I think is clear to understand. More than likely, Nathaniel, while he's sitting on the fig tree, he is reading Genesis chapter 28. He is meditating on Jacob's ladder. And more than likely, he's contemplating here this ladder that gave Jacob access to God and himself is wondering, how do I have access to God? What is the ladder that gives me access to God? And right as he's thinking of this, here comes Philip in verse 45, around the corner goes, we found him. We found the one, the Messiah, the one whom Moses wrote about. All of Genesis, Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, through Seth, to Noah, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that one that has been prophesied about, we found him. He's here. You gotta come meet him. His name is Jesus. He's from Nazareth. And notice Nathaniel's response in verse 46. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? What are you talking about? That's like living up in Pilot Point or up in Denton. Can anything good come from there? And Philip said to him, oh, you got to come and see. And so verse 47, verse 47, notice as Nathaniel is approaching Jesus, Jesus wasn't there in that encounter, but Jesus knows about it. Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no Yaakov, Jacob. That's what Jacob means, deceiver. Here is one in whom there is no deceit coming my way. Who had he just been reading about? Jacob, the deceiver. And Nathanael, of course, says to him in verse 48, how do you know me? Like, how'd you know that? What are you, what are you doing? You don't know me. How do you know me? And Jesus said, before Philip called you, when you were sitting under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathaniel then answers him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the one Moses talked about. You are the king of Israel because only God can know my thoughts and you knew him. And Jesus said to him, oh, because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree. Oh, now you believe in me. You believe me because I I was able to know what you're doing, right? Well, let me tell you something. You're going to see even greater things than that, Nathaniel. So come with me. But notice what Jesus says in verse 51. Here it is. Truly, truly, I say to you, Nathaniel, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending Not on a ladder, but on who? The Son of Man. Jesus takes that same passage in Genesis 28, describes the same events, but he replaces the ladder with himself. He says, Nathaniel, you're sitting there under that tree reading this passage and you're wondering, What is the access? What's the ladder that gives me access to the presence of God? I'm here to tell you, Nathaniel, it's me. The ladder all along was Jesus. What is the bridge between heaven and earth? It is Jesus Christ. Jesus would later say, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. I am that ladder. I am the one, Nathaniel, whom God has sent for you. 
I am the one who's going to die on the cross to shed my blood so that you can be forgiven of your sins, which is what's holding you back from the presence of God. And I'm going to bring forgiveness into your life through my work on the cross. And then three days later, I'm going to raise from the dead so that you, by putting your trust in me, you can be born again too. You can be raised to the newness of life. And you can experience the presence of God right now and all the way into eternity. You can know him through me. Man, will that preach? That'll preach right there. If you are here this morning and you have made an utter wreck of your life, in your own rebellion and your own deceit, you have brought undue damage in your life and great harm in your own story, and you maybe are wondering this day, am I beyond God's reach? Am, am I, is there a path forward for me? Does God still love me? The emphatic answer is yes. The emphatic answer is yes. He has given a stairway to heaven for you. And his name is Jesus Christ. And he's forgiven you through his work on the cross, if you'll just put your trust in him by faith. It's not gonna be earned or deserved. You know, just this past week, as we were all reading the story, obviously, about the submersible that imploded and the five lives that were lost tragically near the Titanic. In one of the interviews, they were interviewing uh, a specialist, a guy some of y'all may have heard of, named Richard Garriott, and, uh, or maybe it's Gario, I can't remember, but um, this guy has a unique experience in 2008, he flew as an astronaut to the space station. He went all the way as far as you can get. And then in 2021, he took a submersible all the way to the Mariana Trench, to the deepest part on Earth that can be accessed. He is the only human being who knows what it's like to go to the furthest reaches of our space solar system out here that we can get to right now and the deepest part of the ocean. And as I was listening to that interview and this guy, I was reminded of Paul's words to the Romans in Romans chapter 10. For those of you that are so striving to have an encounter with God, to be in the presence of God, Paul says in Romans 10, you don't have to ascend to the highest parts of earth. Do you know why? Because Jesus came down for you in the incarnation. Nor do you have to descend, Paul said, to the deepest parts of the abyss in order to find God. Do you know why? Because Jesus came up for you in his resurrection. Everything that you need to know God and encounter him in a way that will utterly transform your life is found through Jesus Christ. And so today, God invites you, just like he did to Jacob, stop striving, stop trying to earn your religion and merit in God. It is futile. It cannot save you. You are not qualified. There is only one who can do it. His name is Jesus Christ. Instead, rest. Let him put you in a deep rest and receive Jesus Christ in your trust. Receive the work that he's done for you already. Encounter the living God. Be transformed by his unbelievable forgiving grace. 
and then consecrate your life to him for the rest of your life, serving and worshiping the God who not only makes promises to you, but keeps them. Amen? Now let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. I thank you that in my wilderness journey, in the midst of my rebellion, in the midst of my opposition towards you, God, not even that stood in the way. That you broke through and you found me when I was least looking for you. And you gave me an encounter with you that I'll never get over. You forgave my sin. You redeemed my past and you made me a new creation as imperfect as I am right now. And I know that's the story of every one of us in this room who have not been saved by our own merit, but have been saved by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. God, help us to not take that for granted. Help us in the spirit of Jacob here, Lord, to offer our lives in consecration to you, to not look back, but to press forward out of the grace that we've been given to go and live out that newness of life that you have redeemed us for. I pray that for every one of us in here, knowing that there is not one person in this room whom your arms are too short to reach. Lord, you love everybody in here and you've sent your son Jesus to prove it. Minister to us now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.